Good evening and welcome or welcome back to these summer school theme talks. Tonight by Stephanie Bisbee is our third and I am very much looking forward to it. We're offering you a real summer school experience, though not the full experience, hosted in virtual space. The theme talks are a key part of what we do when we meet in person for summer school, and we are delighted that we can offer them to you in this way. And now the waving. Summer school is organized by a panel, and the members of that panel are Jane Blackall, Kate Brady McKenna, which is me, Louise Baumberg, Michael Allard, and Nicola Temple. Okay, I'll carry on. You'll see Nicola at some point. Just some housekeeping before I hand you over to Stephanie. Bear with me if you've heard all this before. Please take care of your needs during this session. Staring at a screen is a lot more exhausting than staring at people. So please look away sometimes or just turn your camera off for a moment and be careful with yourself. This talk will be being recorded, as will all of our theme talks this week. We hope to be able to have the recording available by tomorrow morning at some point. The, the video on the recording focuses on whoever's speaking, and there'll only be a fleeting view of participants. But if you'd rather not appear, then you're free to turn your camera off and we'll just see your name. If anything untoward does happen, sometimes sessions get Zoom bombed, our security team, which is Jane and Nicola, will handle it. So just sit tight and wait. The chat box is going to be closed during the talk, except for two occasions when Stephanie will ask you to use it to respond. When it's open, please only use it for that purpose. Everyone will be muted until we open the breakout rooms to avoid interruptions from kitchen appliances, pets and traffic. Live subtitling is available. You should be able to turn them on and off at the bottom of your screen if you look for closed captions. As always, a caveat, Stephanie might well say surprising things, but if there are any obscenities, it's because the subtitling only offers 80% accuracy. That's an assumption I've just made. Apologies if I'm wrong, Stephanie. A new bit of news. After our final theme talk on Friday night, there will be a short act of worship, some closing devotions. It will happen after we come back from the breakout groups and we'll give you more details on that tomorrow on how that will work. At the end of Stephanie's talk, we'll hear some music after which we'll take a five minute break and then you're invited back to join a small group for discussion on the talk. Those discussions aren't recorded. You may need to leave at that point and you will go with our blessing and with the hope that we see you tomorrow for our talk from Bob Janice Dillon. 
if you would like a pastoral session about anything that crops up this evening, Michael Alert and myself, we're both Unitarian ministers, are available until 9.45 this evening, either by email or on Facebook Messenger. You'll have had our details in your invitation. So our theme speaker this evening is Stephanie Bisbee. Stephanie is a ministry student with Unitarian College and a member of Upper Chapel in Sheffield. Hucklow Summer School is the highlight of her Unitarian year and she was both delighted and terrified to be asked to speak this year. Stephanie has worked in marketing, communications and office administration in the rail industry. She studied English language and literature at Trinity College Oxford and creative writing at Bath Spa University. And she's a published romantic novelist and prize-winning short story writer. For this talk, she says she'll try to stick to the truth. So I invite you to settle into a spirit of reflection and receptiveness as we listen to some music, after which we will hear from Stephanie.
Since the dawn of time, people have gathered around fireplaces, called everyone close to listen, and shared music and song and story. Flickering flames have kept the dark at bay and marked a circle of comfort and companionship. So let us gather at our virtual flame in peace and gratitude at this opportunity to nurture our spirits and kindle a common flame of love and understanding. Welcome, as Kate said, to this evening's real summer school talk in virtual space. Whether you're a summer school regular, missing the familiar spaces of the Nightingale Centre, or whether you're dipping your toe into these waters for the very first time. And whatever your age, gender, sexuality, skin colour, hair colour, heritage and history, you are most welcome in this community. You are welcome to bring your joys and sorrows, your curiosities and your certainties. Whoever you are and however you are, you are welcome. Many years ago at summer school, might have been in 2009, but it also might not, I'm not very good at dates. Andrew Usher and I were asked to lead an epilogue. And for reasons I've now forgotten, we decided we wanted to talk about stories. No great surprise, I suppose, as they've been my major fascination since childhood. What was a surprise? was rediscovering recently the short piece we wrote entitled Homily and seeing how much it anticipated this year's theme. So I'm going to read it to you now and then we'll share a few moments of quiet reflection. That silence will be followed by a blessing which I've shamelessly stolen from Louise because I loved it and then a song which we're sharing today with the kind permission of Unitarian Universalist singer and songwriter Jim Scott. Homily. Once upon a time, there was a story of a God who made the world in seven days and led his people to the chosen land. Then there was a story of a man who lived a good life, died a terrible death and rose again into heaven. The stories were written down and in time they were collected into a book. It was translated into many languages. And some people have called this book the greatest story ever told. Many people have believed these stories. People have lived by them, fought for them and died for them. These stories have taken people to faraway places and they have led people home. May we use the language of faith to heal instead of hurt, to unite instead of divide, to bring hope instead of fear and love instead of hatred. May we know the truth and may the truth make us free.
These are the days that have been given to us. Let us rejoice and be glad in them. These are the days of our lives. Let us live them well in love and service. These are the days of mystery and wonder. Let us cherish and celebrate them in gratitude together. These are the days that have been given to us. Let us make them stories worth telling to those who come after us. Amen.
how well this is going to work, asking for a show of hands across three screens, but let's give it a go. How many people here today have come across the hashtag badly explain your job, where people on the internet describe their employment but not quite the way you'd normally expect? Ah, a few, but not too many. Let me tell you about the first time that I came across this amusing little challenge. It was on the Facebook profile of a best-selling novelist and her answer was, I lie for a living. Seeing as my ambition throughout my 20s and 30s was to do the same, I'm obviously exactly the right person to talk to you today about speaking the truth. Truth is a big subject, so let's make sure your brains are nicely warmed up. Here's a couple other examples I enjoyed of people badly explaining their jobs. And perhaps if you've worked them out, one or two of you could type your answer in the chat. So the first one is, I shoot people while other people stand around and watch. I shoot people while other people stand around and watch. Oh, I'd like to say you were cheating, Kate, but I don't think you actually could have been. That was very quick. Photographer. I'll take that one. Film camera person. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually the answer that I had in mind or a closer answer to the one I had in mind only because if you answer these the exact same way that they were given on the internet, they'll all answer with the same letter. But not to worry about that. Here's the next one. I knock animals out and cut them up. A vet, yeah, two answers at once. Oh, and three. And Colleen's even given us the full version of veterinarian. Here's the last one then. I've married loads of men and I know where all the bodies are buried. Vicar or minister? <laughs> so yes, if you're a Unitarian, you're more likely to answer minister. If you answered vicar for the third one, vet for the second one and videographer, for the first one, we'd have had our trio of Vs. There you go. But what makes badly explain your job funny is that the descriptions are completely accurate, but also completely bizarre and misleading. A first hint that just because something is literally true, that doesn't necessarily make it useful. Before we move on from this hashtag, I just want to share one final favourite. I'm not going to make you guess this one. It's I make other people sound like they write English good. And the answer is, of course, a copy editor. And that one comes with an addendum. And if I wanted to get pedantic about it, this copy editor pointed out, the hashtag should be explain your job badly, which oddly enough was my first reaction to that hashtag too. <laughs> I imagine that overzealous editor, a little bit like the one who legend has it, tried to apply logic to improve the opening sentences of various famous works of literature. So when George Orwell wrote, it was a bright sunny day in April and the clocks were striking 13, the story tells us he got the response, dear George, chronometric convention dictates that only clocks using the 12 hour system strike the hour. Consider instead referencing a 24 hour digital display or changing this sentence to, the clocks were striking 1 p.m. Helpful advice. Call me Ishmael, in turn, has the editor asking Herman Melville impatiently, well, 
Is Ishmael his name or not? And who's this Dick fella? When do we meet him? And as for the wonderful, best of times, worst of times, Dickens's imaginary editor stubs out his cigar and says, slowly and patiently, the way senior managers do when they're talking to flaky creatives who can't be expected to quite get it. Well, which was it, Charlie? The best or the worst? They can't both be true. So far as I know, the internet doesn't record the author's responses to these editorial challenges. But I like to imagine Charlie, the Unitarian journalist and storyteller with an eye for a good line, raising an eyebrow and responding with the glib biblical reference that I remember hearing trotted out so often as I was growing up in response to any challenge regarding the truth of a particular statement. What is truth, said Pontius Pilate and washed his hands. What is truth? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And I'm sure everyone who was here for Louise's and Anne's talks now knows the answer. So maybe you can help me out. If you were here yesterday or on Monday, or even if you weren't, but you have an answer handy, would you like to drop a few words into the chat about how you'd define truth? Subjective rather than absolute. <laughs> There's my talk done, I'll go home then. Oh wait, I am home. <laughs> Anyone else? Corresponding with reality. Someone's been listening. <laughs> That's very much the answer that I was expecting to get to. So maybe I'll save you some effort and we'll close the chat box there. Sincere honesty, absolutely. So corresponding with reality, honest. And I suppose the other thing I had in mind is that sometimes we define truth in opposition to its opposite. So not a lie. But before Anne introduced me to Julian Bedini and his 10 types of truth, I had in mind to talk about something a little simpler, just two broad types of truth. The type we might call factual, scientific or literal, and the type we might call poetic or metaphorical. We all know about literal truth, right? It's the kind you say you're going to tell when you swear in court to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Evidence that I perhaps overthink things even more than your average philosopher is that Bergini says that even the most ardent postmodernist doesn't split hairs about what that oath means. But me, I've always had a horror of having to appear in court and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. What if I make a mistake? What if I misremembered or misunderstood what was going on and I say something that isn't true? It's not an idle concern, it does happen. Once upon a time, I was in a police station with a friend making a statement to a police clerk about an incident that my friend and I had been caught up in at a local swimming pool. And the clerk asked us to describe the person who started the scuffle. It was a guy who started it, we were both sure about that. He was of middling height with dark hair, that much was true. And then the clerk asked us about his clothes, at which point things got interesting. I was quite sure the man was wearing a purple talk. Purple top, I really like purple. I remembered the exact shade of purple. There was no way I was wrong. And yet my friend was equally determined he was wearing black. 
In the end, I backed down because I realised my argumentativeness was not exactly helping convince the police that we weren't the aggressors in this situation. That is, until we got outside the police station, whereupon I promptly started up again. What's this with black? He was wearing purple. A really striking purple check lumberjack shirt. How could you possibly forget that? And the answer came back from my motorbike riding friend. Oh, I didn't notice his shirt. I just noticed the fancy bike jacket he was wearing over it. Which was, of course, black leather. As Homer Simpson would say, dull. We were both telling the truth. Me when I said the man was wearing purple, and my friend when he said the man was wearing black. But the truth was bigger than purple or black. It's a trivial example of something that happens pretty much daily. We see one piece of the truth, or another piece of the truth, and then we get attached to that piece. And we completely fail to notice the other piece of the truth. The piece that someone else has meanwhile got equally firmly attached to. When we can't agree whether it's one thing or the other, it's very often because there's a bigger picture, an and, that we're not seeing. We're pointing to one end or the other of the seesaw, but forgetting the wider picture in which the bean needs to balance. Maybe you've heard some arguments like this. Maybe you've even had some arguments like this. We need to leave the EU to preserve our sovereignty and independence. We need to stay in the EU to preserve the human rights successes it has fought for and the trade agreements we have come to depend on. We need to stay indoors to stop the virus spreading. We need to get out into the world. We are social animals and our mental health and our economy depend on our activity. It's so easy to get stuck in one side of the argument and then, as Louise described on Monday, confirmation bias kicks in and it becomes almost impossible even to see the points made by the other side. But of course, unlike personal opinions about how we should respond to a complex situation, purple and black are both still literal provable truths, facts if you like, and if we described the scene in enough detail, we could eventually come to a literal picture that was true and included both perspectives, and presumably that's what we mean by the whole truth. But whenever I imagine standing up in court to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, I find myself thinking with some trepidation of a story I first read in a book by Tony Buzan, an author and educator best known as the developer of mind mapping. As a result of a riding accident, Tony Buzan explained, a young man called Irenaeo Funes developed a perfect memory, and at first everyone was envious of his powers of recall. But his powers soon turned out to be a burden rather than a blessing because of the level of detail in his memories. If he was in court trying to tell the whole truth about the swimming pool incident, he'd have to explain not just the exact tone of voice the lifeguard used when he called out no running, or the colour of the guy's shirt, and the colour of the tiles where he slipped, but also the shocked expressions on the faces of the onlookers, and the fact that one of them was someone he'd seen six weeks before in the supermarket when he went in to buy a loaf of bread. Where would you stop? There's a reason we forget a lot of details. The whole truth is just too exhausting. A footnote to that story though. I only realised much later, to my great disappointment, that Funes wasn't a real person. Funes the Memorius is the eponymous hero of a short story, a thought experiment, by the great Argentinian writer Georges Louis Borges. How interesting that in my quest to convey something about our relationship to truth, I inadvertently found myself turning to fiction. And when I came to comment on that example, 
I then found myself turning to poetry, for truth beautifully expressed by the poet T.S. Eliot. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. The whole truth would simply be too much to keep straight in our heads from day to day, and so we learn early on to discard the pieces that bear no relevance to our understanding of our current reality. But each time we begin discarding a piece of the picture, the risk is that we may discard not just extraneous detail, but something that's critical to our understanding. The whole truth may be an impossible ideal, but it is an ideal nonetheless, because without the whole truth, who knows what important information we may be wrongly setting aside. Oscar Wilde, whose wit often disguises a surprising amount of wisdom, wrote, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Julian Bergini puts it this way, to rebuild belief in the power and value of truth, we can't dodge its complexity. And Quaker writer and activist Parker J. Palmer, a huge influence in my life, who I first learned of from Michael Dadson in his 2014 Hucklow Summer School talk, says this, to see truth in the round, we need many angles of vision, many voices of varied experience. In other words, we need the second kind of truth. We need stories, poems, and metaphors. Just after I began writing this talk, I picked up Alistair McGrath's delightfully titled book, Deep Magic, Dragons and Talking Mice. I found it on a book table somewhere a year or so ago and bought it for no better reason than it was pretty and I liked the title. I don't think I even noticed the subtitle, How Reading C.S. Lewis Can Change Your Life. So it was pure chance that I picked it up now as I began writing about how we use stories to explore and deepen our understanding of truth. In the introduction, McGrath writes, we all want to learn from people who have shown themselves to be thoughtful and helpful in dealing with the big questions of life. That's why so many of us turn to close friends or trusted colleagues and ask if we can have some time with them to get their advice. Let's have lunch is not a suggestion that we just eat food. It's a request to spend time together, to get to know people better and talk things through. We want to listen to those who have been through difficult situations like the ones we're now facing and learn how they coped with them. We want them to tell us how they made sense of things so that we can do the same. When I read these words, I immediately found myself wondering about whether they applied differently now in the middle of a pandemic than they did in 2014 when he wrote them. It's not been so easy for the past few months to do lunch. And so we've had to find other ways to spend time together, to get to know people better and talk things through. And here we are. But where are they, the other people who've been through difficult situations like the ones we're now facing? 102 years on from the last pandemic, we can't really sit down with the people who coped with Spanish flu and ask them about their experiences. Perhaps we might turn to literature from the time, but an article in the online journal The Conversation confirms my suspicion that there is a shortage of literature based around the 1918 pandemic. So what about people who've coped with other challenging situations? One great example is the book I've probably had recommended to me by more people from more different walks of life than any other single book. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. A handful of pages later by a similar process, that's exactly where Alastair McGrath arrives. Realising that there is meaning and purpose in life, McGrath writes, 
keeps us going in times of perplexity and difficulty. This point was underscored by Viktor Frankl, whose experiences in Nazi concentration camps during the Second World War showed the importance of discerning meaning in traumatic situations. We need a mental map of reality that allows us to position ourselves, helping us to find our way along the road of life. McGrath goes on to add, in keeping with Frankel's insights, that recent studies of trauma have emphasised the importance of sustaining a sense of coherence as a means of coping with seemingly senseless or irrational events, particularly those which involve suffering. In other words, those who cope best are those who can see beneath the surface of an apparently random and pointless world and grasp the deeper structure of reality. McGrath, following his hero C.S. Lewis and Harvard psychologist William James, links this deeper understanding specifically to religious belief. But I'd like to suggest a more general answer, which might have appealed both to Lewis and to William James's equally brilliant brother, the novelist Henry. Those who cope best are those who tell the best stories. But what is the best story to tell and to believe? I wonder who here considers themselves a glass half full person, an optimist, and who is more of a glass half empty person, a pessimist. And if like me, you consider yourself a positive person, I wonder whether like me, you found it harder to hold on to that positivity in the face of the relentless anxiety and negativity of so much of the media in the last few months. If so, there's a reason that's likely to be the case. There are many examples of negativity bias. I'm particularly intrigued by one observed by the Swedish doctor and lecturer Hans Rosling. Teaching a course in global health, he thought it would be interesting to get students' attention by asking them to guess a number of statistics which could be used as measures of progress across areas such as income, population, medicine and education. Not surprisingly, most people guessed wrong most of the time. The number of people living in extreme poverty or participating in post-11 education are not figures that most people, even highly educated people, carry around in their heads. But what was surprising was that given a set of simple four answer multiple choice questions, the students weren't simply scoring around 25% on average, as you'd expect if they had no idea. They were consistently scoring worse than chance, way worse than chance. Other than maybe the odd question where they happened to possess the accurate figure, they consistently guessed wrongly. And given a choice between the accurate figure, a wildly optimistic figure, and a wildly pessimistic figure, they consistently picked the most pessimistic estimate. And Rosling went on to replicate this finding with audiences across the world, with the general public in TED Talks, and with global leaders in politics and medicine and business. We consistently interpret the world wrongly, and we do it in a very particular way. The majority of the world, Rosling points out in his challenging book, Factfulness, doesn't live in what is defined as extreme poverty. The girls go to school, their children get vaccinated. Though the world faces huge challenges, we have made tremendous progress. This is the fact-based worldview. But we consistently believe otherwise. Why? 
The human brain is a product of millions of years of evolution, and we are hardwired with instincts that helped our ancestors to survive in small groups of hunters and gatherers. Our brains often jump to swift conclusions without much thinking, which used to help us avoid immediate dangers. We are interested in gossip and dramatic stories, which used to be the only sources of news and information. Rosling acknowledges that these instincts still have their place. We still need these dramatic instincts to give meaning to our world and get us through the day. If we sifted every input and analysed every decision rationally, a normal life would be impossible. But, he cautions, uncontrolled, our appetite for the dramatic goes too far, prevents us from seeing the world as it is, and leads us terribly astray. Author and performance coach Brendan Burchard explains our tendency to catch hold of negativity this way. It's difficult to choose joy in an agitated, chaotic, often angry world. The social contagion of negativity spreads quickly because the human mind is susceptible. We are wired to sense and mirror the emotional energy around us. Seeing fear on someone's face can trigger a state of fear. Such emotional contagion had primitive benefits once. It was a blessing in times of grave danger. When the faces of our friends contorted in fear and they began to flee from some unseen threat, we saw their terrorised faces and automatically felt afraid and fled with them, even before knowing the threat. This prevented us from being eaten or maimed by a prowling animal or murderous band of men. Burchard goes on to explain that emotional contagion, so necessary in the face of an immediate danger, can in a more advanced society itself become the danger, dragging us all down to an emotional common denominator of fear and apathy. It's all too easy for the story we tell to become a negative one, in which with the recognition that the world we live in is in many ways broken, seems to lead inevitably to the conclusion that there is nothing we can do to fix it. One of the primary purposes of the spiritual life, it seems to me, is to interrupt that train of thought with a different and more powerful story. In Seeking Paradise, a Unitarian mission for our times, Stephen Lingwood argues that the essence of faith is what we choose to believe beyond the literal. Our faith is defined by the choices we make about our interpretation of the facts, about what is meaningful and what is not, about what we choose to take action on and what we choose to set aside. He writes, We may try to remain agnostic about truth, and perhaps we must, but we cannot remain agnostic about faith, because to live is to live because of some kind of faith. We all, Lingwood argues, whether we like it or not, choose stories to live by. The question is simply, which is the most empowering story? Creativity coach Julia Cameron, in her wonderful book, A Right to Write, quotes therapist Mandy Aftel saying, the way we describe our lives and understand them is ultimately and inextricably connected to the way we live them. In a very real sense, we're the authors of our lives. Cameron then goes on to ask, if we are the authors of our lives, why not rewrite them more actively? We can find the same idea expressed in different ways across various disciplines. Hans Rosling, as we heard, uses statistics in his book Factfulness to back up a more positive story about the world than we are used to hearing. 
but Gebegman in Humankind, A Hopeful History, tells a similar story. We consistently expect the worst. In crisis situations, we assume that everyone will look out for themselves. Yet time and again, history proves us wrong. From the Titanic to the Twin Towers, it turns out that extraordinary heroism is actually the norm, not the exception. In psychology, the skill of learned optimism, pioneered by former president of the American Psychological Association, Martin Seligman, and explained in a book of the same title, asks us to change our story about why bad things happen, seeing them as temporary, specific and external, instead of permanent, pervasive and personal. If we think we caused, maybe even deserved, the negative event, if we think that things in general go from bad to worse, and if we think that a slippery slope once descended can't be climbed again, we'll struggle to find the motivation to improve things. Whereas, if we believe this is a temporary setback, that lots of good things happen as well as bad ones, and that bad luck can be countered by hard work and talent, it will be a lot easier to set to work to put things right again. In business, the discipline of appreciative inquiry turns conventional wisdom on its head by arguing that focusing on problem areas merely creates more problems and what's needed for true transformation is a focus on finding and moving towards what is most positive in staff and customer experience. Appreciative inquiry is now used widely in all kinds of settings, not just business but education and churches. And in a lovely book called The Joy of Appreciative Living, Jacqueline Kelm explains how applying the same technique in their personal lives helps people become happier. So now I'd like you to take a moment to think of three things you've been grateful for in the recent past. Tiny or huge, it doesn't matter. And just take 30 seconds or so to feel your appreciation for each one. If you want to write them down, you can. Or feel free to move around and stretch while you think. But let's just take a short pause to think of, and if you can, to experience the memory of three things you've been grateful for. Though Jacqueline Kelm arrived at this idea from a secular perspective, the approach she, to life she promotes is very much like the faith Stephen Lingwood advocates in his book Seeking Paradise. A poetic, nature-loving, joyful, 
spirituality. Of course, there are those who argue that this positive focus is unrealistic. Lingwood admits that some might see his faith as too optimistic and argue that it doesn't treat pain, suffering and injustice with enough seriousness. He counters this with the example of Etty Hilsom, who like Viktor Frankl, wrote optimistically of her experiences in the concentration camps, not cultivating a silly sense of denial, but expressing a faith rooted in a deep sense of beauty and love and grace in this world. A faith that can give joy and meaning, even in the face of the greatest horror, can provide the imagination with a sense of hope, a sense that another world is possible, is here, and is more real than the world of violence and empire. This contrast seems to me to be at the heart of our question this week. How do we speak the glorious, hopeful, spiritual truth? That the world is full of beauty and love and wonder and grace, and in so many ways is getting better all the time, while also honouring the reality of those experiencing suffering and sickness and pain and cruelty and crime and discrimination. We do so by acknowledging the complexity of truth, the bigger story that includes both positive and negative, the work that has been done and the work that has still to be done. And we do so by acknowledging that each of us only sees a small piece of the whole picture and we have a responsibility to check and double check our story against other stories and against what we can uncover of the facts and then to speak as honestly as we can of what we find while continuing to remind ourselves that, in the words of Stephen Lingwood again, all knowledge and understanding is shaped by our social position and perspective. There is nothing wrong with this. It is only wrong to be dishonest and claim that it is not the case, with a pretense to some kind of neutrality. I am incapable, says Stephen Lingwood, of seeking truth in a way that is entirely universal and neutral. And so is everybody else. That being the case, our truth is inseparable from our story. Shakespeare wrote, This above all, to thine own self be true, it follows as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Maybe nowadays we'd use the ungendered form anyone rather than any man, and maybe we ought to be a little cautious about accepting too uncritically one of a string of cliches reeled off by a pompous old man who comes to a nasty end because of his bad habit of eavesdropping. But on the whole, Polonius's words get quoted a lot because at some level they are both true and useful. Speaking the truth to others in love begins with recognising our own truth. Oddly enough, I'd never consciously noticed before now that in the very famous verse from John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't say that speaking the truth will make you free. No, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Truth is, so to speak, an inside job. Ian Levanzant writes in Acts of Faith, Daily Meditations for People of Colour, Everyone has something they are afraid of or ashamed of or feel guilty about. Each of us in our own way will devise a neat little method of handling it. Some of us deny, some of us blame. Some of us do a combination of both. Undoubtedly, the day will come when we will be forced to examine that which we have tucked away. We can begin by telling the truth to ourselves 
about ourselves. Indeed we can, although sometimes we need a little encouragement. Earlier I mentioned Michael Dadson's 2014 summer school talk, which introduced me to Parker J. Palmer. And the 2014 summer school was a very influential one for me. The theme that year was the authentic self, and Jane Blackwell gave a talk entitled, Who Are You?, which asked us to consider how we defined ourselves and presented ourselves to the world. And in that talk, she explained an aspiration. To be my whole self, wherever I am, whoever I am with. And how this sometimes meant outing herself in various ways, including as a Unitarian. And she asked how many of us sometimes skated over how we spent our Sunday to avoid awkwardness in a secular workplace or social group. Without that challenge to my shy, reticent, don't talk about politics or religion British self, I wonder whether I'd ever have become confident enough talking about my faith to step onto the path to ministry. Who knows? Perhaps something else would have prompted me if that had not. They say that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And one thing that seems to have acted as a prompt towards authenticity for very many people is the poetry of Mary Oliver. I had thought that was perhaps a uniquely Unitarian thing, but Mark Oakley, the former canon of St Paul's Cathedral and current Dean of St John's College, Cambridge, makes a similar observation in his book, A Splash of Words, which bears the brilliantly ambiguous subtitle, Believing in Poetry. Oakley devotes an entire chapter to Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey, and says he has spent quite a few hours listening to a variety of people of very different ages exploring how Oliver's words have prompted some necessary shift towards honesty in them. This, for those who don't know it, or for those who will enjoy hearing it again, is the poem. One day, you finally knew what you had to do, and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognised as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life that you could save. So Mary Oliver, and it's probably not an accident that it's in the chapter discussing this poem where Oakley mentions his own necessary shift. Mark Oakley was asked to give a talk at the Christian festival Greenbelt in 2014 and decided that in order for his talk to be honest he'd have to come out as gay. He mentioned this intention in advance, as I imagine many of us would, to a few trusted individuals. Only unlike most of us, his trusted confidence included two bishops, one English and one American. Would this be a problem for you? Oakley asked. And the English bishop said, not for me, in a tone which clearly suggested that it would be a problem for someone somewhere, though who that was remained ominously unclear. Whereas the American bishop responded enthusiastically, oh Mark, that's wonderful. No matter what happens, it's always best to live in the light. So many will be grateful to you. 
I'd love to think that as Unitarians, our response would be more like that of the American bishop. But experience says that, as welcoming and open-minded as we strive to be, we can still fall short in recognising others' truth and honouring their experience. Most of us, no matter how open-minded and empathic, once in a while fall prey to assumptions and stereotypes about others, whether that's in relation to gender, sexuality, race, personal or professional status, or a whole host of other attributes. To take a thoroughly trivial example, about three weeks into lockdown, I find myself getting quite exasperated with having to explain to people why Steve and I were attending Zoom meetings from separate computers. Yes, I'm in the same house as my husband. No, we haven't fallen out. Just some people assume that how marriage works is married couples do everything together whenever possible. Whereas we see ourselves as separate individuals who share many things, but enjoy our own space and our own technology. After a few weeks, most people who mattered knew this and I stopped having to explain. But the experience had given me a small taste of what it must be like to live in a way where your truth is different to other people's defaults and constantly requires explanation or justification. At least when I explained my truth, people seemed to accept it. Can't imagine what it must be like to have your self-definition, your identity questioned once you've plucked up the courage to share it. Telling a truth that defies convention is hard when you're certain of your own truth, but even harder when you're still figuring it out. No wonder we so much need the stories of those who have gone before, the poems that affirm the validity of our choice in favour of truth. Mark Oakley describes Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey, as a poem of transformation, necessary change, and of the heart, finally making a decision to be true to itself. At the end of the poem, Mary Oliver describes a new voice, which you slowly recognised as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. The question of finding one's voice is one that preoccupies many new writers, and it's closely bound up with questions of truth and authenticity. Finding your voice and speaking your truth very often, as Mary Oliver implies, go hand in hand. And it's a powerful thing to do, but it's also frightening. Truth is wild, Mark Oakley writes. It's uncontainable and we're always out. It disrupts everything we do to cover it up. And when it emerges, there is the sense that we've been a bit late catching up with it. In Oakley's words, at last who you are, what you are, what you say and believe, all begin to travel together. In Jane Blackall's words, you are your authentic self in all situations, wherever you are and whoever you are with. Don't know about you, but even six years after first hearing that inspiring aspiration, I still find it hard to live up to. There are simply too many opportunities to slide under the radar, to let a contentious view go unchallenged or a difficult truth untold. And I'm continually looking for allies in the struggle to tell more of my truth more of the time. One person who's helped and inspired me is Susan Scott, the author of a book called Fierce Conversations. Fierce Conversations, she writes, are an effort to understand, first of all, for yourself, something that is worthy of your pondering. They are deeply probing explorations. Speak about the things you want to understand. Most people want to share journeys of this kind, forget about being clever or impressive 
Forget also about persuading others to your view. Saying something louder doesn't make it true. What is called for now is quiet integrity. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. But how do we do that? Scott outlines seven principles, of which the first is master the courage to interrogate reality. In other words, be prepared to suspend judgment and engage with someone else's truth even if it's quite different to yours. Others include, be here, prepared to be nowhere else, an exhortation to mindfulness, and tackle your toughest challenge today, invoking courage. The final principle is, let silence do the heavy lifting. In the conclusion of the book, she suggests, as well as spending time in silence, reading classic fiction, memoir, and poetry, and taking walks. Once again, as with Jacqueline Kelm's book, we find a very secular text exhorting us to a set of practices which feel very much like part of the spiritual life. Anne mentioned yesterday a book by Graham Adams, one of my tutors at Luther King House, Theology of Religions, Through the Lens of Truth as Openness. I don't have a lot to add about it, in part because I've managed to temporarily misplace my copy, but one thing that struck me when listening to Graham talk about his research was the incredible courage it takes to engage in theology at the level of true openness, to talk about one's own beliefs with a mind so clear that it's just as possible you will be converted by the other person as it is that you'll convert them. As Stephen Lingwood says, how do we know what we know? Through an imperfect process of discerning truth in community. Are we certain that it's the full truth of God? We know that it is not because the mystery is much bigger than our understanding. Is there more to be discovered? Yes, there is. And this is a good reason for entering into dialogue with others who hold different truths. Summer school is one of the places where I have had many of the conversations which have shaped my thinking. From the topics aired in the theme topic talks through to the in-depth explorations in our engagement groups, we have wrestled with issues of spirituality, self-expression, and authenticity. And over time, I found ways to talk with virtual strangers in these circles of trust about some things that I could barely have imagined discussing with my closest friends. This year has been a little different. Our real summer school in virtual space of practical necessity lacks certain aspects of our in-person gatherings in Hucklow. And yet, over the course of writing this talk, while engaging in real conversations with friends and family, and imaginary conversation with all of you, I've come to realise a point of view I honestly had no idea at the beginning that I held. Speaking the truth in love may be possible only to the extent that we are also able to listen in love, to open ourselves to the truth of others, especially, as Adam said yesterday, those at the margins. But listening may be a topic for another summer school, this week, we consider how to speak the truth in love. In a moment, we will end with some closing music, chosen in honour of Daniel Costley and those who organised and attended Fuse, the Festival of Unitarians in the South East, in February, when this song also closed the proceedings. Then you will be invited, if you wish, to stay and chat at whatever level you find comfortable about two questions. What have you been grateful for in recent times? And when have you told someone, or been told, a difficult truth in love? For now, 
let us pause and acknowledge this truth, that we live now, as perhaps people have lived throughout history, in both the best of times and the worst of times. May we seek to celebrate the best and to remedy the worst, and may we strive always to walk in the light of truth and love. Thank you.